Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Wisdom Keeper podcast, where I am delighted to introduce you to Lama Tashi Monarchs, a very, very dear friend and mentor. Lama Tashi Monarchs is, of course, one of the world's foremost contemporary Tibetan calligraphers and Dharma artists. He is regularly exhibiting his artwork around the world, New York, London, Moscow, Bhutan. He was formerly a monk in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism and completed his very extensive training in a traditional four-year closed retreat under some of the most renowned Tibetan masters. He is the author of Sacred Scripts, a meditative journey through Tibetan calligraphy. And recently he has produced a beautiful online course on Tibetan calligraphy hosted by the prestigious Wisdom Publications and the Wisdom Academy Online. I'm a very, very huge fan of Lamatashi. I've known him for quite some years. I bear some of his work on my body through the through a dear common friend, Thomas Hooper, the uh, the, uh, the tattoo artist. We were able to uh, get Tashi to um, create a beautiful um, mantra for me, which I now wear with pride and as a reminder to practice contentment from the yoga tradition. And so, you know, I've had a quite an extensive long relationship with Tashi. He was also very kind enough to create a seal for my book when it released in 2018, Gradual Awakening. We sealed that during the book tour as I was uh, putting a signature down to uh, those those kind people who bought a copy. A beautiful seal, Om Ahum, uh, uh, in red ink. Lama Tashi was instrumental in, in offering that. And I've had a very sort of lovely relationship with him. I've invited him many times to the Contemplative Studies program where he's been very gracious to show up and do a workshop on the Enzo and also really give us a very intimate look at the creative visualization process, particularly the construction of the Bija Mantra in in the creation stage process of Vajrayana practice. There is this beautiful seed that emanates from a lotus uh, a, a lotus um, hub that then becomes the form of the deity, and of course that seed mantra is you know Tashi's specialty. So he was very very wonderful in in offering us an intimate portrait and uh, and an insight into the mantras themselves. And so I've and I've recently asked Tashi Manax, and he delightfully to my uh, to my delight he accepted becoming part of the advisory board for the contemplative studies program. So I'm in all in all, I, I, I am a huge fan of Tashi Manox and I am so delighted to bring this podcast to you. It in a way was the podcast that almost didn't happen. And the backstory was that Lama Tashi and I had arranged the meeting and I asked him to bring along some wonderful photographs from his pilgrimage to Bhutan. And he and I met, uh, he's of course in, in the Welsh area in, in Wales, and I'm in New York, and we met at the, t- at the Bonafide Time online. And he had his, uh, his, fi- his file of some beautiful images. And we were, you know, for whatever karmic issue there might have been, we weren't able to load his, uh, his slide deck during, during the, um, the podcast. And there was a moment there where we thought maybe we would reschedule and we were just sort of bantering and enjoying each other's company. You know, it's always nice to peer into Lamentashi Monax's world because he lives in like a 
gorgeous like hobbit house in, in in wales and it's like you know he's got his trademark style and class and you know aesthetic feel you could just feel like it's his mandala like the old floorboards and you know whatever else he has around him uh, beautiful hearth i imagine and just very cozy and uh we just sort of gotten we were just getting getting sort of into things very personal and and i was like we were on the sort of at the crossroads where i was like do you want to do you want to sort of reschedule and we'll hang up and pick another time and, and he looked at me and said let's let's just go for it you know don't worry about the photographs let's just go and i hit record and i'm glad i did and because i think we were both in a kind of very intimate mood um very i, I feel like this may be a very personal um you know encounter with tashi that i have the privilege to share with you um He's a, an astounding human being, um, but I think here you'll get a flavor for his, just his, his sort of in, in very tender and joyous nature. And it's not really a coincidence. That nature itself is the magic, is the offering, is the consequence or the result of the very things that Lama Tashi teaches about and the very things that he has embodied throughout his career. So what you get to see in the podcast that's coming up here is the resultant effect of a life well spent, somebody who has been steeped like an English tea bag in hot tea in virtue, essentially, from a very early uh early juncture in his childhood coming into a almost like a transgenerational legacy of dharmic flourishing with his parents both being committed to the to the tibetan lamas in the first wave lama is a magic little being and we get to talk a little bit about the possibilities of him being a reincarnation and for whatever whatever that's worth there's some way of sort of accounting for the fact that he had such merit and such good fortune to come by way of the lamas through his parents and just be taken under the wing and sort of he's just like a little magic being in his childhood and then we sort of venture from there into his vajrayana deep four-year retreat and there again i get this sense that maybe lama hasn't really shared so much about himself in this way and so we're really honored to get a little dose of the sort of day in the life of Lama Tashi during a four-year retreat. And not only that, but also since he is such a bohemoth, a creative bohemoth, his mind is really limitless and his creativity so abundant, we get to see how a Dharma artist's mind was used to bear in his generation stage practice. In other words, his visualization practice in deep retreat I ask him how his mind, it was influenced and influenced his visualization practice. And there I think you'll see this wonderful description of his mandala and more importantly, his sort of inner pilgrimage. And of course, you know me and you know that most of the speakers I speak to by, by one route or another come into the archetype of pilgrimage. And so it is, of course, here again in this episode, Lama Tashimanax revealing him his creative imagination as a kind of inner pilgrimage during this cloistered four-year retreat. And this is on the heels of us now opening up again after the pandemic. 
And um, it's very interesting to see how we did, most of us, at least at the Contemplative Studies program, use the cloistered retreat setting archetype of shutdown towards developing the mind. And of course, that is exactly what happens in a four-year closed retreat. He was always free, but more so even to pursue the depth of his creative imagination. I think you get a very nice taste of it. And eventually we make our way through his first pilgrimage and then to his chance, probably not, but karmic encounters with the king of Bhutan and this very exciting and promising project of re-instilling or reactivating or revitalizing the very old lineage transmissions of calligraphy that were going extinct in Bhutan. There hadn't been a sort of generation coming up with the kind of knowledge or know-how to preserve the, the legacy. And here we find the young, restless child come full circle to become a wisdom keeper for the culture. And I think this is a perhaps the most magnificent sort of embodiment of what Lama Tashi represents to me is this person who maybe he's a Westerner, but his heart was always Tibetan and his heart was always Dharmic and his gesture and his commitment to the lineage meant that every breath he took was about preserving Dharma. And here he finds himself a Dharma transmission keeper, a holder, a preserver so that the lineages of calligraphy in Bhutan could remain intact for future generations. To me, it's a wonderful, wonderful representation of his Dharma heart. And I know you'll join me in celebrating just the magnificent life that Lama Tashi has spent. And it's also an interesting point for me then to just raise a few key points for our consideration as I do before we launch into these podcasts. I really try to just distill a couple of key points First one is the matter of creativity. Of course, Lama Tashi Monax is a bona fide, world-renowned artist. And when we think of his creative prowess, we think of his you know, long hours spent honing the craft of Tibetan calligraphy, the, the, the actual technique and the process. He is a keeper of that, and few of us will ever get to be, although with his new books and online courses, maybe many of you who have even the inclination uh, will, will venture forth and join one of his courses. But now after the podcast, maybe you'll even have a greater appreciation for what it is that you're committed to when you are drawing a mantra or, or shaping a series of letters. This is the word of the Buddha. This is the language of enlightenment. Your attention to detail and your activity is karmic activity. You are participating in the mind of the Buddha through your creative process. And that is a very specific sort of way to understand creativity. But what I want to do is to make it as applicable as I can to as many people as I can, as broaden the notion of creativity from the point of view of the Dharma, really to talk about open-mindedness. Many of us have had a experience of boredom and of shutdown and of the horizon or the vista narrowing, especially after the uh, the lockdowns of the pandemic. And certainly as there is a certain heightened fear vibration that we can easily tap into because of the multiple inputs, what that does is it shrinks the vista 
of possibilities. It shrinks the horizon of infinite possibilities that is always available to us. And, and what the subjective sense of that can feel like is a sense of despair, a sense of apathy, a sense of hopelessness, perhaps a sense of immobility. And I truly think that creativity is the resultant state of the mind that remains open. And I'll give you a little sort of mundane, silly little examples when we get into these very narrow routines. Mundane, household chores, uh, call it going to the grocery store. I don't know about you, but when I head to the grocery store, I get the, 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 the shopping cart and I, I, I have a very familiar bird path that I follow. I go to the fruit and vegetable first. I get the same fruit and the same vegetable. I, I make my way to the dairy and get the same cheese and the same milk or the same, you know, whatever it is. And I make my way around the grocery store in a sort of very familiar, very unconscious manner until I make my way all the way to the cash register where I sort of pay the same amount each week have the same things in the shopping cart each week, come home, put them in, the, arrange them in the fridge the same way each week, main, make the same meals each week. And though I love to cook, it's so easy as a creature of habit to fall into these routines. And then what happens in these routines is that the, the actual net result, the, the eating of the food is also routinized and sort of loses its flavor and it loses its excitement and it loses its sort of impact. And I just want to use that as a kind of metaphor for how most of us in one way or another at some point are also sort of in the dredges or the drudges of routine. And it is on us really to find our way back, like going on pilgrimage back home. And what is home? It is the wisdom of emptiness, which is the home that we're looking for, that vast vista of infinite possibilities that is always available, though we get contracted and rigid and reified and calcified. There is this sense of the immensity and the unending possibility that is always available should we wake up in any given moment and trace our way back to source. We can then sort of blaze new pathways. We don't have to go into the familiar rut we know where the familiar rut will lead us, a kind of deadening of the senses and a deadening of the vitality of life. And Lama Tashi Monarchs, to me represents someone who is extremely buoyant. His nature is very gracious and grateful, filled with gratitude. And he has this sort of magnetism. And truly, most of us know that magnetism when we see a figure like the Dalai Lama. But it's also there in Tashi Monarchs, which is the same medicine and it's really, you know, a very, a very beautiful teaching to see somebody near and close to us as Tashi Monarchs have that kind of radiance and have that kind of, you know, infectious enthusiasm. And I have to say that it is part and parcel on the one side as a result of his keeping his mind open as a Dharma artist. When Lama Tashi Monarchs came to the Contemplative Studies program to teach us that Enzo routine, the Enzo, of course, being that sort of Zen scroll painting of the empty circle, it is, it is about immediacy, that you will never paint the same Zen circle again twice. It's like that, that, that aphorism of never stepping into the same river twice. If we can channel that level of presence and immediacy, and truly take a few deep breaths to reclaim the immediacy of the moment and 
and, 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 and harness all of our senses, all six senses, including the mind, and then set our way about delivering or manifesting that, that signia, that circle, then I think this is a great practice of bringing ourselves into the present moment and into the immediacy of the moment and in back into a synchronicity with the openness of the, of the possibility of life, not encumbered by the past, not anticipating the future, but right there directly in the moment. Such a beautiful teaching. And what I think the application of this can be, especially to those of our, us that are maybe not, would never consider ourselves artists, is how do we bring that immediacy and that presence and that full spectrum uh, immersion into all of our senses, the offering, the gesture of all our senses to bear on mundane daily activities, cooking, cleaning, making the tea, you know, bathing the children, making their sandwiches and getting them off to school, whatever it might be, your preparation before the gym or before going to work. How do we bring this kind of creative possibility there? And if we were to go into the supermarket metaphor once again with this new vision, you know, the open-mindedness and the and the and the the brain flush with a flow state, uh, synchronized to all the senses, and we intuitively move through the supermarket, and we were allowed to pick new uh, ingredients off the shelf. I mean, in my case, it's an enticing thing as a chef. I would love to have that uh, uh, sort of surprise, that element of surprise of the intuition is just gravitating through the aisles, grabbing certain things that look good and interesting and unique and new and novel. The, the, the brain and the creativity is sort of booming. You get to the crash register and you, you pay whatever it is and you go home and then here you are, just like life, making something new. And what that does, how stimulating that does, it draws us out of the deldrum, it draws us out of that apathy, it draws us out of that stasis, and it reinvigorates us. And I think this is just one of the most immediate pressing sort of symbols I can share with you that was really present in my conversation with Tashi. So I just wanna talk about that side, the creative, open-mindedness, emptiness side. But then what is also evident in Tatashi Monarch's conversation and, and in his embodiment is also the merit side or the virtue side. So I did want to just take a couple minutes of your time to talk about merit. Merit, of course, is the sort of karmic consequence of virtue. Uh, so, you know, we really do have to have a sensitivity to cause and effect. I mean, the Buddhist worldview is, there's no escaping it. If you're truly embracing a Buddhist worldview, you're, you have to see things as ultimately open and conventionally driven by the gravitational pull or force of consequentiality. In other words, intentions and actions are the cause and the effect of those causes is ripened in one's consciousness, not necessarily to bear in the external world, although there is sort of a co-origination between us and others. I do believe we sort of attract like-minded people. So if we're in a very low vibration fear mode or we have unprocessed, unresolved trauma and we have sort of archetypes or figures in our life that are abusive, the probability that we will create the causes and conditions to bring those kind of characters back into our theater is very likely. On the other hand, and spinning the karmic wheel in its opposite modality or mode or direction, 
the more gratitude that you have, the more sensitivity that you have, the more joy that you have, the more um, the more uh, more you make life a creative offering in the way that Lamatashi Manax has and teaches. I think you bring certain, you draw out of the quantum field, if you will, the quantum horizon of possibilities, those kinds of characters, causes, and conditions that would just be reinforcing of much more abundance, of much more joy, of much more fulfillment, and of much more purpose. And so if you look carefully at the narrative that we create together in the podcast and you look in the subtext, Lamatashi Manax's life and work is, an, is, a, is a beautiful offering. I mean, he has made his life's work of preserving Tibetan calligraphy and through the Tibetan calligraphy, the words of the Buddha. Every moment that he spends invested in drawing a mantra, which is the word of the Buddha, sacred, is merit-making. It is karmic merit or karmic energy producing. And so this is the thing, folks, is the things that we want in life aren't going to just come to us. And I don't believe in the secret that just having positive intentions sort of is enough. The idea in Buddhism is that open-mindedness and virtue, activity, is what allows us to become a co-creator, a manifester of reality. And so as we make our way through the podcast, you'll see this tremendous boon that is generated at the end of the podcast when, when Lamatashi Manox meets the king of Bhutan, which, which I you know, cheekily talk about as the king and I. This is not a coincidence. This is a synchronicity. This is a drawing out of the quantum field of possibility, a meritorious result, a ripening effect as a result of a life spent steeped in virtue, conjoining the open-mindedness with the the karmic activity or the impetus of goodwill, of charity, of virtue, of high aspiration, of high ideal-making. And so this is what I'd like to just end on with Tashimanas, is you'll see this great radiance and great buoyancy. And it's infectious. I, too, like to bask in the radiance of the Lamas. And it's no surprise, then, for us to think backwards and to deconstruct it and to think how is it possible that someone arrived there. And it is through the, the what they call the bliss void indivisible, the union of wisdom and compassion, the union of open-mindedness, spaciousness, the immediacy, the primacy of mind, and the karmic impetus or force in our constructive ability, how we are co-creating reality. So I think this is a very powerful teaching that lies at the heart of Buddhism. I was, you know, Talamatashi demonstrates this non-dual wisdom and compassion. So I just wanted to raise it here as a kind of primer as we get in to the podcast with Lama Tashi Manox. You know, I just also want to just say that we are, you know, six months out from our epic pilgrimage to Nepal and India with the great Geshe Tenzin Zopa, another sort of emblematic figure uh, who represents wisdom and compassion and somebody who also champions the teachings on merit-making, always whispering in my ear and always in his sermons and teachings, delivering the uh, reinforcement forcing message of of rejoicing, offer and rejoice, offer and rejoice, steep your mind in virtue, develop karmic propensity or 
karmic merit making and then commit or dedicate that merit to your future aspiration. So it's almost like first tap the mind into the openness of possibility, then orient the mind towards virtue, let that galvanize or collect a kind of energy or force and then direct it to your aspiration, whether that be the ultimate aspiration of achieving enlightenment for the benefit of others, or it could be a temporary mundane aspiration that you might be well or that others might be well, or if you have something very specific, like you, I have people contacting me all the time, how do I meet a teacher, for example? This, this recipe, this methodology, is basically how one establishes whatever one is seeking, whatever one is seeking, if, if, you, if you came from the scarcity clinging model, that's how you draw in trouble. If you come from the abundance and the generative energy, that's how you would bring in a partner, a business partner of value, a new spouse, a, a, a teacher, an opportunity. That's how we are interacting with the quantum field. And so I just wanted to mention that we're on our way, you know, to pilgrimage already, even though it might be six out and uh, six months out. And as at the last count, we were near full. And of course, well, there will be future pilgrimages. It's something that I commit to do every year. But I just want to say those people that those 30 some people that are already committed to going to Nepal are already engaged in a process of purification and merit making even before we set out, even before the plane tickets are bought, even before we touch down on the holy lands of Nepal and India, the pilgrim is already engaging in an acceptance of the negative arising of the things that have been caused in the past. So those things are outside of our control. The things that we have said, thought and done from an erroneous or challenged position of miserliness or stinginess or fear or anger or selfishness. There's very little we can do. They're about to ripen. And when they ripen, the yogi says, yes, I accept the ripening without further aggravating the situation. This is the art of purification. So when you have a moment of despair, you just try to see it as a moment that has already sprouted and you try to accept and you try not to do any further harm. This is the, 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 the lowest level of purification practices just to accept our own misfortunes, our own subjective senses of despair, alienation, fatigue, frustration. These are like the sprouts of prior plantings. And then what about the merit making? If you're coming on pilgrimage, or if you have an inner, outer, secret pilgrimage that you're embarking on. Now's the time to plant, especially through uh, having an appreciation for the optimal astrological times for planting. This is a very interesting time to plant. We are amidst a number of portals in time. For example, the uh, April 12th conjunction between uh, Jupiter and Neptune will be one but regardless of when you're accessing this podcast, consult an astrological calendar, maybe Tibetan or otherwise, an Indian one, Hindu Vedic uh, astrology, and you'll start to see that there are these windows in time that make it particularly auspicious to venture forth with intentionality and to allow the cosmos and the energetic field and your own intention to merge together 
and to amplify and to magnify that intentionality. Very, very, very good and very, very auspicious. And so with that in mind at the Contemplative Studies program, my partner Alice and I decided that once a month we should meet as a kind of sangha, as a kind of community online for a fireside ritual and meditation. And we decided to time those at the most auspicious day of the year, a day of the month. Once a month, we chose from the Tibetan calendar the most auspicious month we could come together collectively with all of our friends from across the planet and do a ritual and intention setting and a visualization. And so that we could conjoin the energies of the cosmos with the ones as above, so below with our own intentions and the energies in our own bodies. A lot of alchemy done in Tibetan visualization. So if you're interested in that, the links are below to join us in the community courtyard of the Contemplative Studies program. That is this my new attempt to bring us together in ceremony and ritual and visualization timed with the stars. So with that in mind, also we'll have one other request of you. If you've been enjoying the podcast, these podcasts are made a, available to you absolutely for free because there is a, um, a, a, a secret donor who's made it possible for us to spend time and energy and, and put the AV team together. And of course, that's not going to last forever. And so we're always looking for angel investors and secret angels out there who want to help make this podcast possible. It can be a simple donation or it can be a, a, much, a much more robust and long-lasting donation. And I have a little intention that I want to send, uh, set and put out there online too. It's my wish that this uh, podcast might actually grow into something even more um, um, have more robust outreach. And I'd like to see uh, if it's possible at some point to, to sort of go on mini pilgrimages to meet the wisdom keepers and make this sort of an episodic uh, kind of uh, uh, offering on, on the YouTube channel. I think it would be a wonderful dream come true to be able to meet in live and in person with the wisdom keepers wherever they may be and go on a mini pilgrimages and bring you with us and then meet them in person and get their backstory and get their blessing and maybe do a ritual with them in their own context and spend a little time with them and sort of put that together, that content together as a kind of episode in a series on the YouTube channel. This is sort of, I'm thinking, bigger picture. And of course, in order to get there, I can't do that alone. So if that sort of vision entices you and you have the funds for it, please step forward and contact us. Let's make that happen. This is a time now to have a kind of intentionality as I'm talking about the quantum field and the merging of cosmic energies. This is how I see myself making an offering. And whether you participate in that at the very minimal level of just liking, subscribing, sharing amongst your network and getting some traction, I truly, truly appreciate that. That is not lost on me. That is also a tremendous way of sharing uh, commitment in the Dharma and of preserving the Dharma and of, of transmitting the Dharma. And so I thank you all for, for enjoying and watching, sharing the podcast. And then, of course, those that uh, have a little more means that uh, could help really uh, upgrade the potential of the podcast, please try to find us and let's see if we can make that work using the quantum analogy. Okay, with that, I will allow you to bask in the radiance of the incredible Lama Tashi Monarch's dear friend, Dharma artist, and world-renowned calligrapher. Until soon, 
all best wishes. Lama Tashimanox, my dear friend, mentor, kind friend, and calligrapher. Welcome to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. Thank you. So I was just rec recalling, really, to my childhood where all this uh, magic started. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and children take us to the beginning of the magic Tashi. Yeah, I think uh, take us to the tell us a tale of the beginning of the magic the origin story of the beginning of the magic Tashi Manox. well we we all as children we all look for magic don't we that's what you want and and anything magical is is a thrill as a child <laughs> <laughs> And because it's it's utter utter freedom, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it is. It's just it's, and it's spontaneous and lively, and and it's not of this world. It, it's it's something etheric. Mm. It's really beautiful. And what I've been thinking a lot more recently, especially in the present uh, present state of pandemic panic how solid everything is you know and how governments are desperately trying to control this out of hand situation and we all think that we need to control this desperate situation because it's scary and there's uncertainty so everything's got very serious and very solid and that's not good for any of us. And I think when you're a child, you can see this kind of life. I'm talking about life in general anyway, pandemic or not. As a child, you, you start to have the realization that you're gonna grow up and things are gonna get serious and how, how are you gonna get on and how are you gonna cope? And I think more especially in this day and age for younger people, so much more expectation of them. Pressure. Pressure, huge pressure. Um, peer pressure, Instagram pressure, Facebook pressure, magazine pressure, you know, everything, every corner, you, you're, you're told how you should be looking fantastic and beautiful and sexy and all these sort of stuff, you know. I think that's, that's, that's a hard one. So it made me reminisce to my, my childhood because I noticed a lot of young people have anxiety. It's a lot of anxiety. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't really have anxiety as a child. Okay, I, I was fearful sometimes because I didn't understand something, you know, so you're a bit lack of confidence, but I didn't have anxiety. But what I did have, and I think it's been a great blessing for me was this magic. And this came in the form of Tibetan Buddhism. And from a very, very young age. So my first encounter of a English Buddhist nun, and she was called 
uh, Annie, Annie Shempen, one of the very, very first. She was a contemporary with Sultram Alioni and traveled India at the same time. She was sent to India by Chujan Trumpurimsha. She's an English woman, now known as Lama Shempen Hukam, um, who has the awakened heart sangha here in North Wales. And she's been a friend and mentor all, all my life. Um, so when I was speaking to her the other day, we were reminiscing of the, of the past and, and just kind of realizing how, how much color and magic and, and that I, I had as a child, meeting these early um, wizened Tibetan lamas who were visiting waves Europe and the UK. And I used to tag along with, with my friend, Shempen. She was a translator. Um, so she was right close with these lamas. And one lama in particular, who's her teacher, one of her teachers is um, Kempo Sutrim Jamsarumshe, who's he's still alive. Um, a great Kaju uh, Lama, uh, great academic. And I was, I was very inspired by him. And I was always asking because I had this sort of, this drive to, to want to practice Dharma, even as a very young kid, um, simply because I could see how happy these, these Dharma practitioners called Lamas were. And, and so obviously they, they had something and this is what I wanted rather than grow up in this stressful world. Of course, we still have to grow up in the stressful world and we all have to grow up in the stressful world. But if we have the right view, if we have the right intention, the right view and not remembering not to take everything so seriously and so solid, then I think that's an enormous help. And it certainly helped me. It's quite so, unique to, to have such an early start. Yeah. And, and also it, it occurs to me from our previous conversations that your dad and your mum were also affiliated and interested in Buddhism and around the lamas. And your dad was a great photographer of lamas, wasn't he? Didn't he have a very it, it, fine aff affection or affinity with the 16th Karmapa? He did, yes. The 16th Karmapa was um, very fond of my father, um, um, very playful with my father. And I, I witnessed that as well because I was around. Was his name Peter? Peter, yeah. Peter Mannox. He's a photographer with one of his big old plate cameras. And um, yeah, I was, I was witness to all of this all the time. Do you ever do you ever look back and think like that's no coincidence? You 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 come <laughs> from a, you have your own legacy and you're born into a family yeah. that already has a connection. And you're talking yeah. about you're as you're reminiscing on the mythology of your life and you're you're using the word magic as a jumping off point. Yes, it's it's a unique thing to be a young young boy in England. The UK, mm. born into a family that already has this connection with the first wave of lamas. It must have been the first wave. 
it was the first wave. Yeah. It's, it's good karma. I, I believe, and I've been told as well, I don't share this very often, but I've been told, oh yeah, you, you, you were a monk, not only just once in Tibet, but for many lifetimes in Tibet. Uh, and as the dissolution of Tibet, you know, and as many of the tens of thousands of monks who, who were killed, you know, and died, died of starvation, many of them, in the beginning, um, you know, they, they all need to reincarnate somewhere. And if you've got, if you've got good karma, good connection, then obviously being born in, at the time I was born in the West, when there's this new wave of llamas all coming over, who, who to me all seem very familiar, you know. So I'd, I'd kind of accidentally on purpose sort of got it sorted really. <laughs> and, and, and it really is being at, in the right place at the right time. And that's due to good, good merits, good sunam, sunam, you know, good, good karma. So I must have done something good in my previous lives uh, to have that and to have those connections and to, to be born into this Buddhist family. So yeah, I, I, that's, that's the sort of the, the bottom, bottom line of it really. Um, it doesn't make me any more, of course, important or different or whatever. Well, I suppose it makes me a little bit different, certainly different <laughs> When I was going to my, you know, my secondary school, and it was 1,700 kids there from a, a working class area of, of Birmingham, you know, very undharma, very, you know, very basic, um, of course, wonderful people. Um, but I, I, I did kind of feel very different, and my big secret was that. You know, I was in my at weekends or on holiday times, I was spending time with my family visiting the 16th Karmapa and other great lamas. And I, it was so hugely different that I couldn't really share this with my friends mm. at school. Um, the only thing that kind of linked it together, interestingly, is that we would go to so many empowerments and black hat ceremonies and all this and each time we would collect another colorful blessing cord i had a bunch of them around my my neck like a mat like a, like someone had tied around a multicolored dreadlock around my my neck you know these are these is my my trophy your, your <laughs> neck was laden with blessing cords it's a very it, great metaphor it's beautiful it was, it was. and uh um, and going to school with those on the kids at school used to sort of like tease me and, and that's huh so you think they're blessing cause let's see if they protect you you know bash or they jump on me and try and break them they never broke them um, and so they were kind of cynical and, and perhaps a little bit jealous or whatever and I couldn't really explain where they came from and who these llamas were because whew, way over their head they wouldn't get it you know but interestingly enough, when it came to sitting exams, and we all had to go into the assembly hall to sit exams, then one by one, the bullies would come up to me and say, hey, um, can I borrow one of your blessing cords for the exam? <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and I'd have to dish them out and they'd all wear them to do, you know, <laughs> as good luck charms. <laughs> so even these guys had faith in something, you know, <laughs> and then they'd give them me back afterwards. I, mean, I had to stand outside the door, collect them as they came out. Yeah. Tashi, did it feel like, was it lonely straddling two worlds? No, no, not at all. It, I think it nourished me. I think it, 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 it helped me get through the, what we call the real world in a way, because I knew there was something to fall back on. I knew that I knew there's more, more to life than just what was being fed to me at school and conditioning in, in that way. I knew there was, I knew that there's this spiritual side, this sacred path, this magic that I was experiencing all the time. I, I knew that. Um, yeah, and, and it just set in me this sort of um, enthusiasm to, as soon as school finished, is, is to become a monk myself and to sort of pursue that because it was wonderful. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's set in motion ever since. It's not stopped that, that what I experienced as a child and appreciated has just continued rolling the most extraordinary way and I've ended up in many extraordinary circumstances in my life that sometimes I sit I think wow so here I am you know in this extraordinary circumstance like having a tea just one-on-one -on -one with the king of Bhutan mm -hmm. I'm thinking I'm just this ordinary boy from Birmingham <laughs> you know how come I'm sitting here having a cup of tea with with the king of Bhutan, who's asking me to give him advice about how to sign his name in Tibetan. So things like that, I'm just thinking, how, you know, how is it? Yeah. And I guess it's my, it's my pleasure to sit with you for a little while and come up with a reasonable explanation for how you got there. So you begin with the wonder and the magic and this not inconsequential, but karmic connection with the lineage as a young boy, deeply influenced, filled with awe. Take us to the next bead in the mala. And we'll, <laughs> and we'll, we'll find our way bead by bead up to the moment with the king. The yeah, boy I and think... the king, the king, the king and I. The king and I, yeah. Um... So, yeah, I, I remember as soon as I could be independent from my mother, as soon as I could save up enough money by washing the neighbor's car and cutting the hedge and sweeping the drive for someone around the corner, I'd save my money up. And I was quite strong-willed and very independent. And I'd spend my money on the train fare down to London to go and hang out with the Shempen and Kempo Sotram Jamsa Rinpoche, Changma Rinpoche, many of the eminent lamas. And I was always asking, I was always saying, oh, please, you know, I, I want to practice Dharma. Give me, give me a Yidam practice, give me a practice to do. And they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't give me anything. You know, I was obviously too young, really, to start dishing out abbey shakers to me or whatever, but they were very kind. I mean, Kemper Rinpoche used to call me, um, uh, apparently, uh, Puthlupo, 
when Thoko means relaxed, the kind of the relaxed boy, <laughs> which I don't remember being particularly relaxed, but he used to think I was very relaxed. You know? um, and, but he did say, just pray to Tara, pray to Tara that in the future, the right circumstances will come together so you can pra properly practice Dharma. And so I did, I used to practice the Tara every day, do the mantras. And kind of jumping ahead really, um, a few years after finishing, as soon as I finished my arts uh, training, training in the arts, art college, uh, masters, fine art, masters of art. Um, then long, long and short of it, I, I became a monk at the age of 21, um, which was a, with, uh, with Akram Shay, who, who kind of took me under my wing. Uh, but the ordination, the, the precepts I took from Kalarum Shay, the previous Kalarum Shay, mm. wonderful, wizened, wonderful teacher. I mean, he just taught pure Dharma, but again, in a very light and playful way, really just fantastic. Um, I could really relate to him. But it, it wasn't until being a monk for quite a few years and training as a monk that I went into a four-year retreat. And that was when I was age 27, uh, 26, 27, something like that. And actually, Kemperumshe, who called me Puthupu, um, he, he had made a prediction. He's, he had told me, you know, do create Tara and the conditions will come together, but you won't really start practicing Dharma until you're about 27. And he was right. And it's when I went into retreat. Mm. And that was hard. That was difficult. You know, a young man, quite fidgety. We have a lot of energy, you know, we have to kind of keep pulling and pulling, keeping together. <laughs> Otherwise you're all over the place. And to, to sort of pull myself together and sit still in the retreat for four years, not easy thing to do, but I, I really felt like that I'd started practicing, even though I'd been a monk for you know several years beforehand. Mm. Um, it was really when things kind of got real, you know, and you really faced faced yourself. Even then, in the retreat, I was I was kind of itchy to travel. I knew can, I just, can I just interrupt? Yeah. What, what what's one day in a retreat like? Well, like just can you just give us a one day schedule? Okay, it's very busy. A retreat isn't just sitting there staring at the wall and nothing's happening. Uh, uh, you know, these traditional Tibetan retreats. Traditionally, it's three years, three months, three days, but we did four years. Very busy. You're up at half three, four in the morning is when you wake up. Wash your face with cold water, wakes you up. You don't, as the Germans say, you don't stand up when they say they wake up, don't they? Stand up. You sit up in your meditation box. You don't have a bed. You have a, a square box, which is just sort of less than a meter square and a, a back to it you can lean on. And that's, you spend the night in there. So when you wake up, you're still in cross-legged. 
and carry on with your with your day you have a lot of prayers you do yourself particular special prayers blessing blessing the speech etc etc and you do um then you do a water offering um uh, puja yourself and then i as I, as I remember you join together in the shrine with the other other monks in the retreat there's about 19 of us all together uh three or four tibetans in the retreat with us which is great you know so they kind of helped led the way um and in the shrine room you take your uh your uh, vajrayana precepts together on a daily basis uh, then you would have breakfast which is probably about i don't know i can't remember eight o'clock something like that half seven eight and a little bit of free time you needed a bit of free time because whatever practice you're doing at that time because you go through most of the, the major yidam practices for you know belonging to my lineage the kaji lineage and um, so you need to make tormas to make the offerings every day um, all these sort of things it's very busy so you don't have time to sit around you have to get on and then your first session starts and you're all in your own rooms you don't enter each other's rooms and nobody enters yours it's your space and you have your your own shrine properly set up according to the, the particular practice and you go through the whole practice yourself chanting bell and damaru all this sort of thing a bit of meditation um and then you would um I think there's a, a pee break, so everyone dashes to the loo and then back again. Um, and then you stop um, midday about um, for lunch, and the food is cooked for you, vegetarian food, and you all file up, line up, and uh, help yourself to like a buffet <laughs> and sit down in the dining room. But lunchtime is the only time where you could really kind of chit chat with each other, you know. But after four years, you kind of start to run out of things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> apart from a certain bird you heard outside you know i i got to know all the bird song we, we shouldn't be too distracted but you can't help listening to birds and things like that you know so i knew every different type of bird song what it was if it was an alarm call if it was a mating call and which bird it was you know you become your sensory perception extends you're not just in your own body, in your own room. It extends. You become incredibly sensitive. You can hear for miles away. You become, you're not listening out to it, but you just become aware. It's a bit like when we drive a car. Your sensory perception goes to the exterior to the car, doesn't it? If somebody dints, clips you, you go as if they've actually slapped your ass because you're, that's where your, your perception is. So it's a bit like that in retreat as well. And, and Sometimes I, I felt like I, I like to feel like I was in, including the whole world and everybody. So I never had this sense that I was trapped or imprisoned. And actually, there wasn't a lock on my door. And if in my mind I walked down the corridor to where the outside door was, there wasn't a lock there. And then there was a gate outside and there wasn't a lock there. In fact, there was nothing between us and the outside world. The only thing that kept us there was our commitment. Mm. Very strong. 
and we never even ventured from the building. We always had to be able to touch the wall. That's as far as we'd ever venture. Yeah, incredible, really. So anyway, lunchtime. Then we go back to practice again. Usually struggle trying to keep awake because you're just eating something, you know, you're getting the nods. <laughs> and then we stop for, um, I can't remember, I think it's either of them, I can't remember which order now, but we have later in the retreat, you do the, the um, you're practicing the six yogas in the Ropa. So part of that is the, the yogas, the trunko, where you're jumping up and down and slapping your full lotus position and holding a breath and all this sort of, you know, stuff, um, which is really great. You know, you can kind of, good to do something any energetic and get some heat going and were those were those instructions given to the group not 19 of you all got at the same time yeah 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 we had someone coming to to, to do that um that was great um and that's kind of in line with the practice you're doing at that time if it's you know call a demchog or badger yogini these, these practices um and then also we would all do a daily Mahakala prayers together and other prayers as well, no matter what. I can proudly say that I somehow managed to do every single Mahakala every single day for the whole four years. Amazing. There wasn't one that I, I was sick or because sometimes you you know you have a cold or you're sick or you know something happens. I managed to do every single one. Which is very unlikely to be so, you know, committed. Yeah, and um, then you have evening. Um, we didn't eat in the evening, I don't think. I think we have what we call medicine meal, which is like you can drink tea or, or drink some yogurt. Tibetans never say eat yogurt, they always say drink yogurt. Mm. Evening prayers. Um, usually the last prayers we do is church practice. Um, and that's obviously when it's got dark and that's usually about 10 o'clock at night. And then by half 10, 11, uh, you're leaning back in your box to catch a few hours sleep. How long did it take you to get used to being in a box? Um, it is horrible. I mean, your legs really hurt. My goodness me. Um, yeah, quite a few months. A few months. And then it, it took almost as long to get used to lying down flat again afterwards and leaving the retreat. I, I remember being given a bed and it's just like, it, it, I've never seen anything look so comfortable in all my life, but I couldn't actually lie down in it. I yeah, slept you know, propped it's up. A, it's uncanny how the description is, you know, basically a solitary confinement in a prison, but it's volunteer. <laughs> it's, it's, it's volunteered. It is yes, yeah, it like is, you, yeah. you have these, you don't have locks, but your commitment to being in sensory deprivation, which then, as you say, makes you so acutely, finely receptive to the environment because stimulation has been brought down yeah. and such a small little physical space, but it's all under commitment and voluntarily done. Another thing I wanted to ask before we get, you know, back to the main meta story as an artist, since you had already so chores chosen your creative path, 
what's your what was your visualization practice like as an artist since you have such a you've already had this amazing receptivity to the inner eye and I just wonder you must be an extremely visual person already when you're sitting down yeah. for six months with Vajiragini, what that might be like. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, I, I think I think if you are a creative person, um, it starts with the mind, you know. So you, I, I personally create artworks in my mind first before I, I apply them to the canvas or the paper, you know, I'm there because I know that mind is limitless. So I can do anything in my mind. Actually, it's when you, when you convert it to the, to the canvas or the paper, that's where the limitations come. And that's actually another of the skills of the artist is knowing how to convert those limitations, still to look really smashing and beautiful as you have in your mind's eye. So I think that sort of yoga of the mind, the exercise of the mind, primes you very well for visualization. I think it does, it, it, it helps. My problem was, um, is that I tended to get carried away sometimes in the, in the visualization. Um, I, I remember de describing once to, to the retreat master who used to come in and, and we'd have interviews, you know, every couple of months or something and just talk about your practice and progression and, and I remember explaining to him what I was doing during the mandala offering, you know, visualizing Mount Meru and all of that. And because you have to do 111,000 offerings, you know, it can get quite boring. You know, and all this sort of clattering of jewels and rice and, <laughs> and, and um, so I really went to town on the visualization just to sort of, it, it became an entertainment for me, whether it's a good thing or not, I don't know, but it said, I remember it today. And I, I, I used to venture up the side of Mount Mary, which actually goes up that way, you know, and I decided that each side had a different color rock and it had waterfalls coming down. And you could, if you looked in holes, you could find jewels and all these different things. And it was incredibly elaborate. And eventually I'd get to the top and it, it was massive plateau that in the middle was, was the, the, the divine palace. And, and I'd spend days literally, you know, doing the offerings, walking across this plateau that was full of flowers of all different beautiful colors, you know, and aromas. And it was just the most gorgeous, beautiful place. So, and I was completely entertained in my own imagination visualization of it i still see it to today yeah so uh, that that to, that that to me sounds like uh, a pilgrimage in your mind it, it is it's it's absolutely a pilgrimage but all the time because i was offering the mandala i was offering this experience all the time like all these you know acres of multicolored flowers i would i would offer them you know all the time offer them so i was offering my own imagination you know which you could which is limitless it's wonderful. I had such a lovely time. <laughs> and the teacher, my teacher says, well, yes, well, that's a bit unconventional, but you know, fine. <laughs> Whatever. But yeah, I did. I did struggle as an artist a little bit in the retreat, especially as a young guy. I was a little bit fidgety, you know. Right. This is I think you told this story of how 
you, yeah. this is where you get your uh, your your first introduction to be a calligrapher, no? Exactly, yeah. And it was because there was a lot of manuscripts that were old and crumbling and difficult to read because they've been fingered so much and dirty and ill printed. So my job during the break time only, whilst people would enjoy a cup of tea, I'd run to my little calligraphy room with a cup of tea and I'd sit there and I'd painstakingly copy using a mapping pen. And went on for years, these manuscripts. Great discipline, great discipline. And that, that really was the foundation of myself as a calligrapher, yeah, calligraphy artist. Yeah. Yeah, so those are the origins. So the seeds are there in a four-year retreat based yeah. on your own predisposition to fidgetiness. <laughs> you you draw in the the blessing of being the scribe, essentially. Yeah, really. It's it's like being a scribe in the medieval sense, you know. It's it, your it's a labor of love. And of course the, the the power of the metaphor for me is that what are you a scribe of is the words of the Buddha. Yes. I mean, yeah. that is just, I mean, I hope that's not lost on people listening. It's like the characters, this script, mm. which you can discuss. I mean, in terms it has its own origin and its own legacy and its own evolution, its own development, thousands of years old, you know, has, you know, you can tell us about the origin of this script. I'm sure there's many scripts that you're acquainted with as a result, but the script is the vehicle for the words and the legacy of the commentaries of the Buddha. Yeah. They are the first touchstone or entrance of the Dharma into one's mind, which yeah. I think symbolically we take for granted when we just order yeah. Lama Tsongkhapa's treatise on the stages of the path on Amazon. It arrives two days later on your doorstep. What has gone in yeah. to receiving a Dharma book that we have come so would take for granted that what it took was the land bridge of language and script and the reproducibility of the scriptures so that it made it mass produced and mass accessible all down to scribes people like you so that dharma can enter into the minds I and mean, of course there was oral teachings of course um, but uh, the intimate connection between scripture and oral teachings, I'm just, and do you have any thoughts on these? Because I think they're so potent and, and so oh, they're like little gems. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, it's said that the, because the Tibetan alphabet, as we know it today, was formulated um, to accommodate the Buddhist teaching it was migrating from India to, to Tibet, so from Sanskrit into Tibetan. Done actually by this guy here, Tomni Sambuta. He was one of the ministers of the first king of Tibet who was sent uh, to India. And he really evolved uh, the, the writing systems as we know today. Because that they are the, because of this, and they are the, the vehicle to containing dharma, trans, trans, yeah. sharing dharma, then each of the letters of the Tibetan alphabet are considered bodhisattvas. Wow. 
Beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that's so beautiful. Each letter a bodhisattva, like a living, a living entity. Yes, that's how it should be seen. And I guess that's the symbolic meaning of the bija mantra, the the seed syllable. Exactly. Arri arises in your visualization before the deity's rupa form or the the yes. actual embodiment. Yes. Yeah. Because the language has come from Sanskrit, the 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 languages come from enlightened minds. So therefore, where you see the language and you speak the language, you write the language, it puts it connects you to to that ultimate. You know, it's plugging you in to enlightenment that is there all the time. It's a, it is a vehicle, complete vehicle. And when one of the delights I had much later on in the story, um, when visiting um, Bhutan, sitting with these uh, old wizened Bhutanese calligraphers who are monks, and one of them pulled out a whole load of manuscripts that we were going through together of examples of how you write these different scripts. There's one particular manuscript um, that, that I, I started to read and, and very soon saw that it was a, a teaching on each of the letters of the alphabet, not only are bodhisattvas, but they actually gave a name to each of the bodhisattvas. I'd never seen this before. Well, I have it partially translated as some parts missing, but an incredible discovery um, to, to come across. So mm. that was a, a big reward. Mm. But that's later on in the story. So, so far we have your karmic connection to the Dharma in the origin story of your mythology. Mm. Then we have the entrance into retreat and during that great period of assimilation you come into contact with the legacy of scripture or calligraphy. Mm. What's What do you think the next major milestone in the mala is, the next bead, as we head up to the king and I? <laughs> well, leaving the retreat obviously was a, a big, a big, another big shift and propelled back into the, the real world as, as, as we know it. Um, and which often is is very disorienting it probably is. in my experience of leading tours to but gaia the orientation to india requires a lot of adjustment but it's often the return home that requires even more adjustment what say you yeah it is it's the, the it's the, the cultural shock of returning um it's adjusting but in but you you do you you can't really say you're changed because of the retreat you're more yourself because of the retreat you're more in touch with yourself and that what the real world out here isn't yourself so that's where it jars my mother said when she met me within a couple of days of me leaving the retreat she said oh She's very shy, you know, very respectful. She said, you're just, your energy, your being, charisma is exactly how it was when you were newly born. Wow. 
isn't that beautiful? I, I mean, I, I didn't feel any different, but that's what she observed. And, and, you know, there's this kind of purity and a return to who you're supposed to be, you know? So purification, lifting off these layers and layers of conditioning that sort of like make us to who, what we think we are, what we project we are by conditioning and, and all the rest, you know, our ego. It is, it's returning more to yourself. So if you become someone different because of Dharma practice, then you've missed the point. You should become more who you really are. Wow. It's, it's unmasking, it's unveiling, it's, it's showing, it's taking the masks off and seeing. And, and, it, and it can be a painful process because you don't always like what you see. But at the very, very core of that, our own true nature of mind is stainless. It's pure. It is. And this is, I think this is very obvious. So knowing that gives you confidence. Perhaps sometimes I think to myself, perhaps I was a little bit too cocky confident <laughs> afterwards. I wasn't that pure, you know, I wasn't that tamed. Uh, and according to my teacher, I needed to do 12 years in retreat. <laughs> <laughs> so four was only the beginning um and yeah but this confidence was great you know you come out and you don't take things so seriously everything's magical i remember being given the responsibility within two weeks of being at a retreat that i had to go and collate and organize a major exhibition of tibetan art buddhist tibetan buddhist art up in glasgow and so there I was the next moment sitting on a train going to this, this big city. I hadn't seen a city for four years in mm -hmm. retreat. I remember just how beautiful it was. All the traffic lights and all the shiny cars and everything was twinkly and gorgeous and just beautiful. You know, and the busyness just flowed past me. I wasn't hooked up with it. You know, you have a different view. I really, honestly, when you said that, it reminded me of what we're amidst right now with COVID, where everybody's locked down. And depending mm. on what you're doing with COVID, I mean, someone like you has had for your retreat, you don't seem daunted by COVID because you've already been through a retreat. And so you know how to get about and you know how to get about stuck in and you know how to detach from the fear channel. And, you know, and, I, and I, I, I suspect all of us in a way are going through some level of adjustment and sensory deprivation, and we miss our family, we miss our friends. And the way you describe being on the train to Glasgow following a four-year retreat where the wonder has returned, the magic has returned, yeah. or you are now a magic bearer, maybe yeah. it's possible for some of us at the end of this stint with COVID, because it will end. It will end. Yeah, everything and who is it that's going to emerge as a result of whatever it is, that is that we engage with over the three or four or five years or however long it takes? Just just a point for listeners, I guess, based on your experience, that it is possible to go through you know the dark night of the soul and come out the other side completely transformed and ready and ready to engage. And this is, I think, the bodhisattva archetype in you, Tashi, having done the miraculous great retreat so rare for a human being to undergo such a regime and i have to admit the way that you describe it you did it quite joyfully and wonderfully i mean mm -hmm. i think you i think your soul 
really enjoyed it. Really, you know, the way you describe no, summit, summiting Mount Meru. But but <laughs> that trip that, yeah, that, that trip that trip to Glasgow may be you know the first the end of a cycle because it's now returning home. Now it's returning to the world. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So then I was put forward as a teacher um, and traveled a lot. Now I traveled with a lot of different Dharma centers around Europe and, and accompanied my teachers, Akram Shah is their personal assistant and traveled with them, assisting with, with everything from washing their underpants to, to helping them do an empowerment. Passing the ritual objects and all the rest, and that was that was lovely because it was it was I'd got to the point you could say, but not out of ambition, but I got to the point of being a monk like these lamas that I saw when I was a child, mm. just rolling with it, you know. Just rolling. another return. I mean, it's like the student becomes the teacher. You're 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 finally in the position that you once emulated, even though you wouldn't describe yourself as that kind of uh, awakened being, you still, you are the Lama that returns. And I know you don't like that title, but I, I, that's how, <laughs> that's, that's how I see you. You're too, you're, you're, you're wonderfully modest. You're wonderfully modest. I guess it's my own karma to be able to bow to you and say, Lama, you've done it. You know, you have done it. I admire well, you, and I admire you for it. And you—you're uh, a great source of inspiration. You know, you are a great source of inspiration. I'm—I'm I'm more than happy to to share, to inspire. I think that's what we should all do. If we're on a good roll, then we should pull it, pull us all along. You know, we, if we're stuck in a hedge, we pull you out of the hedge. You know, <laughs> even backwards. And there's enough. There's enough negativity in the world that's pulling us all down all the time, you know? Isn't it? Going, pulling us backwards, dragging you back into the hedge, the prickly hedge. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm, I really don't, and, and that's, that's, I think that's what gives me the reason for being a, a, an artist, because that's, is a means to inspire, mm -hmm. to show a window into, you know, something more out of this world. Mm. Yeah, I think so. So your first pilgrimage? Yeah, um, my first pilgrimage, we, we went proper pilgrimage. Pilgrimages, well, this is, I'll say this first. The retreat is definitely in, in a pilgrimage and there's two there's two types of, of travel we can do, inner and outer, definitely. And both of them are just as valid as each other. And you learn different things from different, you learn different things being introspective and you learn different things from the experience by travel and what you meet and different cultures and all that sort of thing. I think there's a danger on the exterior one to be, become um, addicted to travel and you can, you know, I used to meet people, come cross paths with, with people who had been traveling in India for many, many, many years. And my goodness, they were completely unhinged mm -hmm. and 
unsatisfied and restless and they'd stay a few days in this amazing temple and wasn't it fantastic but then you could see they were irritated and they need to move again you know perhaps because they started irritating the people around them you know so they're running away from themselves all the time and i think going on pilgrimage myself was all the more valuable because i had gone on an inner pilgrimage of a retreat first it's the right way around to do it really mm. or you go on a pilgrimage to himalayas and, and go into retreats you know if you can suffer the food and the sanitation <laughs> but, but better to go on a retreat in the west where you've got flush toilets and central heating for us guys yeah so I, I think that's that's a good point to make between the two inner retreats and outer inner and outer um but yeah we we went as a group of monks and nuns we went we all went to tibet and that was quite an extraordinary experience we, we all went there with our teachers uh and one of them the brother of akum shalom she hadn't returned to tibet since he escaped as a 13 year old boy mm. and all their family came right across from cam they traveled I think the bus even came off the road and they all broke their arms and legs, but they all got back on and carried again. And they all came for, it took them a couple of months to meet us in Vassa. And we um, we were there to go and see His Holiness Kamapu in Supu. He's a very young boy. And yeah, we had a nice extraordinary time. Proper pilgrimage. Nekor, they call it Nekor. Um, so with every temple, monastery we're going to make offerings, give offerings to the monks, do practice in these different places. Yeah, really, really nice and very nice to, it's kind of to connect to the origin of, of your own faith and to see the actual places where Songkhapa was in retreat or where, you know, he happened to put his foot and they left a footprint and all these inspiring miracles. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the way the Tibetans are and spending time traveling around with, the, with, you know, their family, all these women with children, we'd all pile into the back of a lorry, you know, open top lorry and we'd be going off for miles and we'd be absolutely covered in dust by the time we came out. But what we did in there, we all just, shouted chanted together 21 taras as as the as the wheels of the vehicle was right on the edge of a precipice you know or <laughs> whatever it was you didn't dare look and so it was just joyous and then we'd stop because some one of the aunties would say oh see those rocks over there we must go there it's all part of the pilgrimage look and we'd all go up there look there's a there's a gap underneath the rock. If you can squeeze underneath there on, the, on your belly and then go right under another rock and then deeper under another and then come out like that. If you can do that, then, you know, successfully without being scared, then you, you will, they say, 
when it comes to dying in the bardo, you'll cope sort of things. Oh, okay, so we'd all be laughing our heads off, squeezing through, you know, and fat grandma was getting a bum stuck and, you know, we're pushing and shoving. And, and the whole time in Tibet was like that, you know, another big rock and it had a little hole in it and you're supposed to cover your eyes and then walk forward to try and put your finger into this hole without seeing and, and they say and if you miss then that means that you're going to go to hell you know <laughs> something horrifying like that so you're sort of trying to cheat and of course everyone would miss you know <laughs> if you got the hole in your finger blindfolded then you get enlightened in one lifetime you know there's all this playful inspiring stuff you know we don't get that here do we yeah i was talking to uh uh not as much. I was talking to Glenn Mullen about this because he was saying that the the creativity, the multi-dimensional, the multi-dimensionality of the Tibetan worldview. Yes. He was talking about sacred geography. Yes. He was talking about the land filled with spirits as a living entity. I mean, you're talking about the script as an entity, the landscape as an entity. Mm-hmm. The world is filled with magic. Yeah. And what a, what an incredible culture. What an incredible culture to revive the human spirit after three, four hundred years of alienation as a result of scientific reductionism. Exactly. To, to reconnect, Tashi, and I know we'll get to the King and I, and we'll get to this concept of reconnecting. But here I just wanna I just wanna highlight that we're we're both reinvigorated by our connection with a culture that retains this aspect of spirit here and now in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Tibetan Buddhism isn't just Tibetan Buddhism. When you become a Tibetan Buddhist, you're learning the lay of the land. You're learning, you're learning about the spirits. You're learning about how to be a human being in contact with Mother Earth. And, and we've very much lost that in our modern societies here in in the west very much lost that so we we're kind of getting yeah we get we, we're getting a good deal really <laughs> we're getting a lot how to be as a human being you know that's that's first we need to be a, a, a good foundation of a human being and then we become a good buddhist mm-hmm. you know, it's more difficult to do it the other way around you know so we have as, as westerners we have hell of a lot of catching up to do and a lot to learn and a lot to remember and revise um i was lucky again when i was a monk i was very fortunate to travel around um the uk with um his eminence sitarum shay and sitarum shay is he's one of the few tibetans who is the lineage holder of the Tibetan Feng Shui. Mm. And it was quite interesting to travel with him because it was the first time he'd been to the West when I was with him. And he would, as we were traveling, he would kind of observe what we were passing, a church on a particular hill and things like that. And he said, you know, you guys, I can see the way old buildings are where they're built and all these sort of things. You, you had this law, this natural law. Yes. Yes. We had it. We had it oh, no, in Europe. For, we had for it sure, we did. We did. We had it, but it's lost, you know. 
you know, the, the Christian yeah. church was, was built on top of the, the pagan temple, you know, or, or exactly. In, in Greece, and those, uh, those pagan traditions all had some very fine connection with other worlds and entities exactly, and spirits yeah. and a sense of magic and a sense of wonder and a sense of the geothermal lines and the placements of Stonehenge and the rest of them were not arbitrary. There was some sacred knowledge there. There was. So there's a lot to learn. And as a child, going back to when I was 15 years old, I used to have a, I don't know what was going on, but in my dreams, I would go to like the side of a motorway that had been plowed through the, the ground. And I'd, I'd put my arms around and I'd start to spin in a clockwise position because I had to change the direction of the ley line that had got disturbed by the motorway. Mm. And I'd be doing all sorts of stuff like this. I don't know where that came from. Mm. But yeah, there's there's a lot. Later on in the journey, we visited a, an old abbey with Sitarumshe. Beautiful old ruined abbey. And as we were walking around it, he suddenly said, oh, I know this place. We'd never been there before. He said, oh, if you go around the corner here, that's where the, the monks' quarters would have been okay mm, we went there, there they were and they were he said i said how do, do you know this you know Rimshe? and sit Rimshe said oh in one of my previous lives I, I was a monk here and i thought how beautiful is that you know christian monk buddhist lama now mm. you know it's all the world over it's all the same mm. so beautiful very beautiful Okay, Tashi, bring us to Bhutan and your recent work now. So, yeah, um, I got invited to Bhutan initially to hold an exhibition of my artwork with um, Aman Hotels. Very nice. They're, They're wonderful, nice. aren't they? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Such nice. great taste. They have wonderful very taste. Very good taste. So, so yeah, it's, it's for holiday makers. Uh, you know, the the the, the rich and um, famous go and stay these places. So it does attract quite a crowd. Um, and very soon being there, uh, I f made friends um, with some of the royal family who came to see my exhibition, and one in particular um, called Ajibebi Kesang. They put the baby in there because she was the kind of the little, the little princess. There's many princesses. There's a lot. She she's very humble. She says she she's not a princess. She would say, um, but she's very much involved in the uh, conservation and restoration of artworks, monasteries, and temples in Bhutan. She follows very closely in the the footsteps and absolutely loves and adores her royal um, grandmother who was obviously the, the queen to one of the previous kings, um, who does an awful lot of work in building monasteries and, and renovation and things like that. So although she's a very young princess and quite worldly in one sense, she has great devotion to her teacher, teachers, um, Tibetan lamas, Bhutanese lamas, uh, and to the Dharma in general. Um, Dilgo Chensurum shows a teacher. And um, and we just we just hit it off. We're just really good friends. And she then subsequently invited me back 
And one of the conversations I remember having with her, because she saw my exhibition, she came to see it. I, I said, I said, um, actually, Kezang, I said, I would really love to meet a, a Bhutanese master of calligraphy. You know, I'm sure there's so much I could learn from this old master of calligraphy. And she went, oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Next time you come, we'll arrange something. <laughs> so next time I visited, I said, oh, what, what about, you know, how did you get on finding a calligrapher for me to meet? She went, um, um, she said, uh, we've, looking, we've come to the realisation that there's hardly anyone we can find. Wow. And we've actually come to the realisation that our um, curriculum stopped teaching how to write Zonka, which is essentially the same. It's very similar to Tibetan. Um, during the 90s, they stopped it. So they were just speak, teaching how to write English. And we've realized now, discussing with them, the central monastic bodies they call who take care of the education and the monasteries, and the education schools and everything, that this is a big mistake. And actually this is quite a few generations of not, no one really writing properly. And it's our language, our heritage is degenerating very quickly. So we really need to get something to do, you know, to, to do this. And so I started working with her and, and she very skillfully did discover a few old Tibetan uh, Bhutanese lamas, uh, one lay lama, uh, calligrapher, these masters and who were reluctant at first and she winkled them out. And so for my next visit, um, we, we all gathered together, a whole bunch of us, as probably four real you know, masters of calligraphy. And the, the main Kempos would come to sort of sponsor it and launch it and everything. And we, we had an absolutely wonderful few days together, bringing out these ancient manuscripts that I mentioned earlier in the talk, just discovering this one rare thing about the Bodhisattvas, as the letters, um, discussing the implements, how to make the calligraphy pens and all this wonderful, wonderful. I was in my elements. I just I absolutely loved I it. And we were talking the same language of calligraphy. And I was showing them, you know, what we use in the Western pens and brushes and this, and they were amazed. And they were showing me how to do this and a traditional way of doing things. I loved it, absolutely loved it. And so from that, it was decided that they would go away and compose new um, writing manuals that then were published and have since um, been distributed across um, Bhutan and they've revived the writing tradition um, in the schools and, and curriculum. Now, of course, the pandemic happened, so the work I was doing there was kind of cut short, really, but I'm, I'm quite confident that they're carrying on you so know. what role what role have you played in that revival? Well, really, just just the initial sort of realization, you know, and encouragement at the beginning. I didn't. After a while, I didn't need to do much at all because they really, with their their national pride, they wanted to get on and do it, you know. And I'm so glad that they they did, you know. They actually at, at one point didn't weren't you training some of these younger 
younger um, scribes? Yeah, the younger scribes, are, we, we, they kind of tested, tested some of the younger scribes to see how they would, they'd get on. And they're, they were monks who volunteered themselves. Some of them weren't particularly good at writing, naturally good anyway. And uh, yeah, we, we spent, um, oh, I don't know, a good 10 days and I'd go through and learning, teaching them. Um, yeah, that was a very nice exercise to do. So I'm, I'm, this is where I want to just pause and take a big step back and take a big, a big breath because, mm. you know, if those, you know, I was talking once with a friend who was also a Dharma, Dharma practitioner, but also had a very fond connection with the First Nations people in Canada. And he said at one point, he was in a car with three other, the wisdom keepers of the lineage. And he said, if there was a car accident, mm. their entire legacy would be wiped out. The connection with the past would be wiped out. Yeah. And just like species on the planet, as globalization and ecology breaks down, species are being wiped out that will never be alive again. And yeah. culture is like that. Culture yeah. is like that. And as we described spontaneously through our discussion, the calligraphy is like the lifeline, if you will. It is the living connection or the living deities that form a land bridge into culture. Mm -hmm. And you played a part, young kid from Birmingham, in reviving a culture on the verge of collapse. On the verge of collapse, so that, that meeting, that chance meeting with the princess, it becomes aware in her face that they are now amidst a generation where it could be lost. Mm -hmm. And there's just something I want to pause and ask you just to reflect on in a more meta level, like what that really means to you. Um, yeah, a difficult thing to share because it, it's very kind of personal, personal to me, and also I don't want to sound, I don't want to claim ownership to that just by myself. I think I played personally. I think I played a very small role in that, um, but nevertheless, you know, I was involved, and you know, the, what I share you with now is. is when I left Bhutan after those meetings with these lamas, calligraphy, um, I, I, just, I just cried on the flight. Yeah. I just cried, cried. Yeah, because I, I, was, I was happy, but just how everything works, works in circles. You know, that I'd learned all this stuff and it come right round, you know, everything come in a full circle. And I remembered, if, you know, if I dare even say, <laughs> I remember the prediction from Guru Shay, who said the Dharma would fall in Tibet, it would go to the West, and then it would be reminded back. And dare I say, I'm maybe just a tiny little part of that, that yeah. kind of concept. But it gave me, personally, it just gave me so much sort of, well, this is what my life is all about. This is my purpose. Yeah, I was going to say, and, what and meaning? That, what meaning? Just put me in floods of tears. You know? I mean, they're, 
Bhutan are fine now, they're getting on really great. You know, I don't need to, I don't need to help anymore. You know, they're getting on with it, which is brilliant. Yeah, I don't know, but but how how much I was involved and really made a difference, I don't know. But that but that feeling of being part of something, it's really nice. Yeah, yeah. and it, it did make me cry. Yeah. <laughs> with happiness, I have to say, you know, how fortunate, how absolutely fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. You don't really, you often wonder what your purpose of life is. And I, and I hope there's still much more purpose that I have. And I really do hope. I wish for that. But one doesn't know a, a true purpose in life. We all, we all have a purpose. All of us have a purpose. Um, no matter what level. I mean, mine's very colorful and exotic. and <laughs> But everybody has a purpose. We all have a purpose as a human race in helping each other, in making, we all have, we should all be useful in, as human beings. It's just so wonderful. Yeah. So wonderful. Meeting the King. Yeah. He, he just, he just came to my exhibition, of course, and, and just liked it. <laughs> So I, I happened to, to meet him and he admitted that he, he'd said to me, I, I have to admit, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of your work. He, said. <laughs> <laughs> he did buy a few pieces, which, which was a great honour. Um, a, a lot of the money I gave back to a, a, a small charity that, you know, it's, it's a homeless school that I support in Bhutan. So give it back. Um, orphan school that, that been built being built by a wonderful um, monk that I met over here, a Bhutanese monk from Karmalekchiling and um, Kempa Namjel he's called and he single-handedly from nothing from the dirt has built raised money and built an orphan school for children whose parents have died or, or they're too drunk to look after them or whatever um, and he's raised them all raising them all and I just think it's wonderful what he's done so it's really nice to give something back to help help with that. But the king did say, you know, he very very sweet, such a lovely man, and really a true monarch, truly working for his people. Yeah, it seems he that really way. Is. Yeah. He really is. He at the moment he looks exhausted because he's dealing with protecting his his country from COVID. You know. We're snapping at the, at the heels of, of the border of Bhutan and India. Can you, what's going on in India? And he's managed to keep that, keep it safe for everybody. Mm. Amazing. And he, he's, he's hands-on. He goes out there. He travels to the most remote corners of Bhutan to see his people and to Amazing. give his support. I mean, he, he's just incredible. Um, yeah. Dharma Raja. Yeah, he really, really, really nice, really nice. And then he, he usually, then on parting, which surprises all his entourage, and, and he gives me a hug. Mm. <laughs> so nice. I said, to, well, 
as you baby cast on this does the king normally give people hugs like they said no 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 <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, and he gives a really good hug you know how people give that sort of like standoffy hugs he, no he gives a proper good he's lovely lovely yeah. but, but he's he's educated in in oxford and we share some friends from oxford so there's kind of a connection as well it's a small world I suspect part of the reason he gives you a, a lovely hug is because you're a lovely being, and uh, I'd love to give you a hug. I can't wait to <laughs> s I can't wait to see you again, Tashi. Uh, I think this has been a great conversation. Before we started recording, we were going to show some photographs, and there was a moment there where I, I think you paused and you were reflecting on your life, and and you said, "Go ahead, roll the tape." And I'm so glad we did. I'm so glad we did. I feel like you've you've really showcased what. Joe Campbell would call a full heroic journey. And, you know, from your early childhood, the blessed in, you know, karmic connection to the Dharma through the, your retreat and your connection with calligraphy, through your first pilgrimage and connection with the sacred land and into Bhutan reviving or helping or even paying a small part. You remain so humble and in your humility, so inspiring. You're such a great treasure trove of wisdom an ever abound abundant abundance of joy whenever I speak with you. I feel so good in your company. And I know that whatever, we, whatever came of our discussion today, people are really going to enjoy because it's a wonderful story. It really is wonderful. And you're wonderful. Your energy is wonderful. And so thank you so much for, for taking the time to really, you know, just open your heart and just go on the ride with me. It was truly a truly magical time with you. Thank you. I love you. And a big hug, big joyous hug. I love you all. <laughs> so I'm going to be, hopefully, if all goes well, if we don't get more lockdowns, I may be in Manhattan uh, around March. And this is for the premiere of a new film on, on the escape of the Dalai Lama called Never okay. Forget Tibet. Okay. Um, they invited me to do the uh, calligraphy for the, the credit score at the beginning. Wonderful. Um, yeah, nice story. Uh, told by, the story is told by the officer who was chiefly responsible for guiding the Dalai Lama out of Tibet. And so it's his side of the story that he, he told for the very first time and really told the hardships that, of course, the Dalai Lama would so humbly not go into. Mm. Um, and he's this, this uh, guy that's since, since uh, officer since passed away. So he's his last sort of thing before he passed. Uh, it's been made, been made into a major feature film. Well, wonderful. Well, that's something to look out for. So I'll so make sure to put I'll put those links in the in the in the in the description below, yeah. including your uh, your website and all your art and your uh, offerings. Web and website is a there's a new one coming. I'm busy building that at the moment. Uh, but the reason why I'm saying about um, this film is that I hope to be in New York myself for the premiere. Well, I'd love to see you there. And as you know, as you have kindly offered to invite me to your cottage. My humble cottage in Westchester is open to you. And we would much. love to we would love to host you if you care to be out in the in a little um, bit of the wood, the country. Uh, You're yeah, most I welcome. Prefer be, I, I prefer the country much more. Uh, unless I'm like proper downtown Manhattan and country. <laughs> <laughs> 
So thanks again for being part of the Wisdom Keeper podcast, Lama Tashi Monox, and certainly you are a wonderful Wisdom Keeper. All best wishes. Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. If you've enjoyed this presentation of sacred knowledge, kindly like, subscribe, review, and share our podcast and video series on YouTube with your network so that more people can benefit from these teachings and together we can create a brighter future. If you're interested in my online courses, our community membership, and pilgrimages I lead, consider visiting the Contemplative Studies program at gradualpath.com. Until we gather again, all best wishes.